Uh, let's pray as we open God's word together. Lord, please bless us with your eternal word. We know that it is more precious than pure gold, than much pure gold, that it is the only light uh, upon our path, um, and it is the only food for our souls, dear Lord. So please um, strengthen us this morning by your living word. Uh, please challenge us, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, make us strong for the tasks that you have set for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I wonder if you can think of a movie you've seen where most of the time spent in the movie is really kind of slow and brooding. It's just kind of building up the tension. And then it comes to this massive explosion at the end where it just explodes into action. Uh, I can think of quite a few movies that have that sort of shape. Maybe uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a bit like that. Uh, so is Lord of the Rings, uh, A Few Good Men, uh, a movie I recently saw with Jimmy Stewart, Rear Window, is a bit like that. They share this pattern that um, most of the movie is slow, it's very restrained, not much really happens, but it's shot under this like dark uh, sky full of thunder clouds. There are clouds of brooding suspense, and we're poised on the brink of a big storm. We're waiting for the clouds to break, for the action to start. And uh, in some ways, John's gospel has that, very, uh, that kind of shape. Uh, so far, we've had 17 chapters of building tension. We've been coming closer and closer to the brink of war. And now here, in chapter 18, we come to the very last few hours of Jesus' life, and the storm finally breaks, and it breaks in a tornado of blood and violence. So let's turn there today, uh, John chapter 18, page 904. Um, it turned out to be a great week to have our drama, because this chapter is indeed very dramatic. John 18, page 904. So as we, uh, as we look at John chapter 18, we find that the first blood is drawn uh, by Peter, by, by Jesus' side. So in verse 10, it says, Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then uh, it's relatively calm in terms of violence until we get to verse 22. And the next strike is uh, by the side that's against Jesus. It says, when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. All right, and, and, and as, we, uh, as we think about the whole of Passion Week, this gesture might sound relatively small and, and uh, insignificant, but actually it's quite important because this is the first act of physical violence against Jesus' own person. Um, or should we say this is the first one that made contact? <laughs> um, because Herod tried to kill him as an infant and Jesus escaped unharmed. The synagogue rulers tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth and again he walked away and they tried and failed to arrest him before in Jerusalem. But this blow, in verse 22, makes contact. It's the first strike to land, and it's the breaking of the dam. It's the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. Once the tension finally erupts into violence, the whole story is over remarkably quickly. A three-year ministry ends in less than 24 hours, including capture, trial, and lengthy execution, 
all happen in less than a day. This one day in the history of our world is a day we're going to spend the whole next 40 days of Lent thinking about as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So it might feel to us like a day in extreme slow motion, uh, but we're going to look at every detail carefully because every detail matters. So today we're going to talk about Peter and ask the question, why did Peter collapse so dramatically and deny Jesus three times, especially after Jesus had warned Peter that this would happen before the next rooster crowed. He should have been ready. That is the focus of this whole section in John 18. Um, And John has structured this section a bit like a symmetrical hamburger. You've got bread, then lettuce and cheese, then the meat, then cheese, then lettuce, then bread. Uh, So the top bread is verse 18, where Jesus is led to Annas. And then the the top lettuce, verse 17, is the question, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter denies it. Then we have the cheese, verse 18, Peter was standing and warming himself. Then we come to the meat in the middle of the section, Jesus investigated by Annas. Then under that is cheese again, verse 25, Peter stands and warms himself, same two words. And then lettuce again, we get the same question in verse 25, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Followed by two more denials. And finally, the bottom bread, verse 28, Jesus led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So John's put two things together, uh, the the denials of Peter and the uh, standing firm of Jesus together as a kind of sandwich. Uh, And it's very deliberate. Uh, invites us to compare Peter's behavior with his master, Jesus, and it is a comparison which is sadly unfavorable to Peter. So first I want to set the scene for us. Uh, Jesus is taken captive in the Garden of Gethsemane by a band of soldiers, as we saw, um, and as Tom taught us about last week, there might have been as many as a hundred or more armed men. Jesus is bound. He's led back across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem. His disciples are scattered and they run away, but Peter and another disciple follow them at a distance. And we take the second disciple to be John himself, the author of this gospel. Jesus is taken into Jerusalem straight to the home of Annas. Now remember, this is the middle of the night, and it's right after the opening feast of Passover, which is usually family time or sleeping time. Uh, Annas was maybe the most respected religious leader alive at the time. Annas was the father of a high priestly dynasty. Uh, Annas himself had served as high priest about 20 years before, and then all of the subsequent high priests had been his own children and children-in-law, sons and sons-in-law. So uh, Caiaphas was like the fifth in the line of Annas, Uh, who was serving as high priest. Uh, So Annas was this really big deal guy in Jerusalem. Uh, It was kind of like Jesus was taken straight to see the Pope. Um, In the middle of the night, on Christmas Eve, um, and and Peter and John follow him there. And uh, one of the surprising things is that they actually get in. uh, According to John's writing, uh, John knew someone in the high priest's uh, family or household and he was able to get in after Jesus. Peter was denied entry at the gate until John went back and spoke up for Peter. But um, John wasn't able to get Peter any closer in than the outside courtyard. Uh, 
uh, it seems that John himself was able to get all the way inside to the chamber where Jesus was being questioned. And we suspect that because uh, he's reporting. He's the only gospeler to report that. Uh, and we think that's because he was there. It was his own eyewitness testimony. Um, so John seems to have been able to stick like glue to Jesus, even though it seems that John was a well-known disciple of Jesus. He wasn't making his discipleship any kind of secret. It says in verse 15 that that disciple was known to the high priest. Again, in verse 17, the servant girl asks Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And the also surely means in addition to John. Uh, so John is a known follower of Jesus, and he walks right into Annas's house. Uh, John also might have been present for the trial before Pilate, since he gives us so much detail on that trial too. But we see that John is left completely unharmed. He's an open disciple, but he's not hurt in any way uh, through the whole sequence of Jesus's passion. So all of this deepens the mystery of why did Peter feel that it was necessary to lie and deny his Lord. As we look at the life of Peter in the Gospels, he really doesn't seem to have been any kind of coward. Not even an hour earlier, Peter had drawn his sword against maybe a hundred armed men. Peter was strong in his faith. He made bold promises to his Lord. He said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And then when it comes to the time of trial, John strolls into Annas' house as a known disciple and Peter lies to a servant girl? We have to realize that in their culture, based on hierarchy and status, a free fisherman would have found the opinion of a servant girl about as scary as you or I would find the opinion of a five-year-old child. Peter's need to lie to her is a surprising collapse of character. And uh, we can interpret it that way. Maybe, maybe that's exactly what happened. It was just a collapse of character. And the, tale, uh, the lesson in the tale for us is that character can collapse surprisingly easily. That the distance between us now as good and upright Christians and people who would become liars and traitors in a moment is really much smaller than we think. We really are very untested people. And we don't know how well our faith would hold up under pressure, whether our good intentions would stand firm. That's actually part of the reason that we do things like embrace Lenten disciplines. We wonder, can I keep a day of fasting as I intend to against the growling of my stomach? Can I keep an hour of prayer as I intend to against the drifting of my mind? Can I give away my money as I intend to against my self-centered ideas of what else I might do with it? And a steady routine of disciplines like this builds up our strength of character. It makes it more likely that when the day of testing comes, when the real challenge comes, we will stand firm in our faith and not collapse like Peter did. And we see around the world that many Christians have stood firm in their allegiance to Jesus, even when it has meant violence against their own person and even when it's meant death, including, in the end, Peter. And so, yes, maybe Peter provides a helpful cautionary tale in this story, a warning about cowardice and the collapse of character that we can all learn from, uh, and a lesson that we need training and discipline in the life of faith. But I do wonder if this reading of things is fully fair to Peter. Uh, Peter really doesn't come off in the rest of the Gospel accounts as any kind of coward. 
Before this, he went out with the 72 and did public ministry in Jesus' name. After this, he led the church through all kinds of personal persecution. According to tradition, he died being crucified upside down. Peter wasn't a coward, and his denial of Jesus here is truly out of character. It makes me wonder if there wasn't something else going on rather than just fear. As I read through this text, I do wonder if Peter wasn't trying to cook up some kind of rescue plan for his Lord that depended on secrecy, whether he was trying to stay undercover, act as a kind of spy. Is it possible that Peter verbally denied his Lord to preserve his cover when in his heart he was still Jesus' man through and through? After all, we find Peter sticking as close as he can to Jesus, right up into the courtyard of the high priest. The other nine disciples are off running scared. If Peter's quaking in his boots with fear, why is he even there in the courtyard of an ass? If his motivation was a clandestine operation and not cowardice, then we would draw a different lesson from this text, and it would be a lesson about expediency. That word shows up in verse 14 in the ESV, if you look down, where it says, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Expedient. That's such a lovely, evocative word. I looked up the uh, definition of it, and it's such a nice definition. Yeah, expedient means convenient and practical, although possibly improper or immoral. Um, and here it was expedient that Jesus should die for the people. It wasn't fair, it wasn't just, it wasn't strictly moral, and it certainly wasn't friendly, um, but it might save the whole of the Jewish people, so it would do good in the end, and the ends would surely justify the means, right? Uh, in my studies this week, I was struck by this word in 14, and, and I went to look it up uh, in the Greek to see if that was an accurate translation. Did Caiaphas really say it was expedient that Jesus should die? And, and sadly, no, he doesn't say that. <laughs> uh, Bev's translation was actually closer. Uh, uh, Caiaphas said simphero, which means just profitable, advantageous, good, or better. Uh, it's a word that Jesus used in his own teachings to talk about better ways of life. It has no improper or immoral connotation. But I still kind of love that the ESV chose to translate it expedient here. I kind of think they were spot on because killing Jesus with no cause was obviously immoral. Expedient might not be what Caiaphas said, but it's certainly what Caiaphas meant. And coming back to Peter, if Peter was planning a clandestine operation to rescue Jesus and was therefore lying about it to servant girls, then he was just as guilty of being expedient of thinking that the ends, in his view, saving Jesus, would justify the means of telling a few lies. So in trying to bring about the outcome in his head, Peter fell into the very sin he had promised Jesus he would never commit. And when the rooster crowed, Peter was undone. So if that's the case, then we would learn that the methods of expediency are profoundly at odds with the Christian life. Expediency made Caiaphas a servant of Satan. Expediency might have turned Peter into a traitor. And it was forgivable. Peter was forgiven. But why should we repeat his mistake? We see that in the Christian life, uh, the ends never, ever justify the means. 
In fact, the means are the whole ball game. We cannot use wicked tools to work a righteous deed. Machiavelli was completely, completely wrong. There is no justification for bad methods. If it was the case that you could murder one innocent person and therefore save every orphan in the world from starvation, do not do it. You would be condemned along with Caiaphas. The orphans of the world are in the Father's hands. Do not stain your hands with blood. Peter, first of all, drew his sword and drew first blood in the conflict, and Jesus told him, no, not that way. Peter's second try was deceit, and that was just as bad. Not that way either. Instead, then, what was the right way? And so here we finish by coming to the meat of the hamburger, because obviously Jesus is the one who provides the right way, and the right way is courage and truth and love. Jesus, in the middle of this passage in verse 20, shines out brightly against the foil of Peter's mistakes. Where Peter was questioned by a servant girl, Jesus was questioned by the high priest himself. Where Peter told lies, Jesus spoke plainly and truthfully. Where Peter cowered in fear, Jesus stood courageously. And where Peter escaped unscathed, this time, Jesus was torn to pieces. What Jesus says to Annas in verse 20 is, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temples where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. You know, they know what I said. And for that reply, he gets punched. Uh, when we opened this passage on Tuesday at the prayer meeting and read it together, Matthew Christovich couldn't help quoting Monty Python now we see the violence inherent in the system. Uh, it's funny, but it's true. Uh, Jesus breaks wide open their system, doesn't he? He reveals that at its core, it is built not on truth, but on violence. We expect that from Rome. Of course, Rome was built on violence and murder and fear. But the court of the high priest? Using the playbook of Rome? This reflects very poorly on the high priest. He resorts to violence because the truth is not on his side. What Jesus essentially tells him in verse 20 is, you know what I said, and I'm here because you understood me correctly. And that's when we uncover the violence inherent in the system. So, it's not a good system, clearly. But Peter was still wrong to draw his sword against it, and he was still wrong to use subterfuge against it because these are not godly tools. Jesus shows us the godly tools. He stood his ground in the truth. He stood up for his way of love. And Jesus, then we notice, actually succeeded where Peter failed. Um, the whole of John's gospel can be viewed as a kind of trial between Jesus and his opponents, which then kind of really uh, flowers at the end of the gospel into a real trial. Um, but who is on trial? Is it Jesus or is, he, is it his judges? We see that uh, here Jesus is actually the one judging his judges by his behavior. Uh, he said in the gospel that it wasn't yet time for him to act as judge. Um, but here in his trial, uh, you know, he is, he is judging the people judging him, isn't he? Uh, nevertheless, Jesus, 
He exposes the violence that's inherent in their system. He exposes the wickedness, the hypocrisy that would preach Moses, that it would lay these heavy burdens of Moses on the backs of the people. And then it would oversee a sham trial that broke at least four of the Ten Commandments in one day. The next few hours of Jesus' life are going to look like defeat, but they're actually victory. And Jesus achieved, in the end, the end that Peter wanted which was the victory of the kingdom of God. But he achieved it through means that Peter never imagined, through the means of humility and self-sacrifice. So I'd like to think about that today for us as we reflect on serving the kingdom of God. Maybe we too operate in a bad system in one way or another. Maybe there are ways that it's built not on truth but on violence or at least on some kind of force. The way of Jesus that we're called to follow is distinct from the twin errors of Peter. We do not use the sword, we do not use violence against violence, and we do not use lies against lies. Instead, we prepare ourselves to stand firm in the truth. Whatever trials may come and make us betray it, and to be always people of peace and love. And I can't promise that these methods won't harm us, But I think I can promise that they will succeed in the goal that we share together of advancing the kingdom of Jesus. It's wonderful to know that our Lord was a brave man. When it came to the time of testing, he proved himself a mighty man of valor, better than any of David's mighty men. And I call us to prepare our hearts in this season of Lent to be ready when the day of testing comes that we will avoid the twin errors of Peter and stay faithful to our Lord Jesus.